and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, commencing to read at verse 11 and reading through verse 18. Hebrews chapter 10, and commencing to read at verse 11. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the very Word of God. Hebrews 10 at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. As we noted last Lord's Day morning, some passages in the Bible serve as conclusions to great doctrinal portions of Scripture. And our text this morning gives us a good example of such a passage here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 through 18. It is indeed a great conclusion to the previous doctrinal section of this book, showing that whilst the, new, the old covenant offered no real solution for sin, Christ's priestly work in the new covenant successfully and sufficiently solves this great problem of all mankind. Well, as we seek to complete the exposition of this passage, as I indicated in the Lord's goodwill and providence we would do this morning, we are going to think about four things. First of all, by way of review, we're going to think briefly of the great statements and the great transition. We'll do that by revisiting that in summary form. And then secondly, we will continue in the point that we just surveyed at the end of last Lord's Day morning, 
a great reality. And so I've entitled that, A Great Reality Continued. And then thirdly, we will come to a great comparison. And then lastly, a great conclusion. So, a great statement and transition revisited. A great reality continued. A great comparison. And then a great conclusion. So, first of all then, to reorientate ourselves, a great statement and great transition revisited. Verses 11 through 14. In his lengthy exposition that started all the way back in chapter 7, the author has compared Christ and His priestly work to the whole sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And so now, in concluding his great argument, the author teaches that whilst the Old Covenant offered no real solution for sin, Christ's priestly work in the New Covenant successfully and sufficiently solves this great problem of all mankind. And so that's why we read here in verses 11 through 15, 14, a great proclamation, a proclamation of wonderful good news, that by Christ's once and finished sacrifice, He has put away sin and made holy all who hold fast to Him by faith. Now, of course, this was a great blessing. It was a great um, announcement and proclamation of good news for these Christians in the first century. Remember that they were under temptation to go back from faith in Christ to Old Testament Judaism. And so, this argument here of the author to the Hebrews is an overwhelming, compelling argument for such first century Christians who, as one commentator puts it, quote, were fretfully wondering if fidelity to Christ, if faithfulness to Christ was worth the cost, end quote. The difficulties we have to face, the sufferings we are already facing, and maybe are going to be called to face more intensively in the future. Is it worth it? Well, here the author to the Hebrews makes this compelling argument. Yes, it is. Because if you go back now, there never was a final solution in the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. There were signs to point to the reality. But in and of themselves, he's made absolutely clear, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Never. But now that Christ has come, the true Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, if you hold fast to Him by faith, then your sins are forgiven and you have the great gift of eternal life. And that message speaks just as powerfully to people today, even as we noted last Sunday morning. Whether you might be one who is considering Christianity, and thinking about the great claims of Christ, repent and believe in the gospel, 
or whether you are one who already professes to believe in Jesus Christ, but you're finding the way difficult. There is a temptation to say, should I go back? This message speaks just as powerfully to you this morning. Christ is the one and only answer to whom all must come, and then having come, must remain and stay. That's what the author is saying, whether he speaks to first century Christians or 21st century Christians. And so, as we come to the next section, in fact, the whole section, then 11 through 18, we find here not only a conclusion, but a transition. This sets the stage then for what we often call the application. Now, it's not that there's not been application to this point in what the author has said, but the emphasis has been, first of all, in what God has done, what we call the indicatives. And now the major emphasis is going to transition to the imperatives. So, what are we to do in the light of what God has done? And this is clear in the text in this section. The transition is highlighted here, as we noted last week, through the use of the phrase, made perfect. In earlier chapters, of course, in the book of Hebrews, the phrase mainly refers to the Lord Jesus and to His perfect and unique fitness to be the Savior of sinners, to put away sin both as a perfect sacrifice and as a perfect priest. But now once that point has been established, the author then uses this same phrase, made perfect or perfected, in reference to what God intends for believers, those who are united to Christ by faith. Christ was made perfect in His role as Savior and High Priest for His church in order to sit at God's right hand so that we would be made perfect in Him, perfected in Him for our role as those worshiping nation of priests, that holy nation of priests that will worship the Lord forever and ever before the very throne of God in heaven above at that last great day. So, so much for revisiting the great conclusion and the great transition. We come in the second place then to a great reality continued. And here we're looking at verses 15 through 17. A great reality continued. Now, last Lord's Day morning, we simply surveyed this section. And I want to spend more time because it is certainly worth our while to do so in these verses. Now, it's important that we understand the ideas and the terms that we come across in this passage. The word that is translated as made perfect or perfected may also be translated made complete or sometimes finished or made fitting. And we've already noted that in connection with the great work of the Lord Jesus. That's how it's often used and those different nuances 
with reference to Christ and His work. But when it's applied to believers, it is closely associated with the idea of sanctification, the idea of sanctification. And we see this connection of ideas particularly here in starting in verse 14, just prior to the verses we're going to look at, where we read, believers are made perfect and are being made holy. Now, as many of you will know, the basic meaning of holiness is the idea of being set apart, being set apart, distinguished from something else. For example, just as the vessels of the temple were holy, they were set apart from common use to a sacred, a holy use in the, in the worship and service of God. Well, that's the idea here that the author is taking up, where he thinks of believers, he speaks of believers, as those who are set apart for the service of God. Now, in this sense, holiness then emphasizes status, or we might say position. For instance, in Hebrews 10 verse 10, uh, that verse emphasizes that we have been sanctified, the author says, or made holy by the great work of Christ upon the cross. In other words, we've received this status, uh, we have this holy position by the work of Christ. But holiness also carries the idea of being conformed to the character of God, to the holy character of God, and particularly uh, and specifically being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who of course the Scripture tells us is the perfect expression and revelation of the holy God. Holy things, those things which are set apart, are to be kept pure. They're no longer fit for use if they are set apart but not kept pure for the purpose for which they have been set apart. In other words, their purity is that which is appropriate and fitting for their holy status. What does that mean for us as Christians? It means if we therefore have been made holy by Christ, given that holy position and status being set apart, then God's purpose is that we will now be conformed perfectly, ultimately, not yet in this life, but ultimately, we will be conformed to His holy character as that is presented in Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His, that is God's Son. Now, we also see these ideas in the very grammar of the text, as we call it. And particularly as we take a closer look for a few minutes at the very verbs 
in this section. Um, for those who like their uh, English grammar, then uh, perhaps you are going to uh, uh, enjoy this uh, particularly. For those who may not, then I appeal to you, still hang with it. Even if grammar is not your first love uh, in, uh, in your studies or anything else, um, this is important here. Hang with me. What we have here in these verses is a presentation of the past, the present, and the future. First of all, there was a past completed action. Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, if you were taking a test, midterm, final, whatever, in English grammar, and you were asked, so what tense are these verbs in? then hopefully you would say, of course, they're in the past tense. This is something that's already happened. We read, he had offered, and then he sat down. They occur in the past tense, and they indicate that the action here is completed. And then secondly, in verse 14... Here the author tells us of the effects of that completed past work of Christ. Again, he uses the perfect tense here, a past tense in grammar. By a single offering, he has perfected those who are united to him by faith, believers. Again, that tense indicates a completed past action though it has an ongoing effect for the believer. It isn't something which just is in the past and stays there. It was completed there. It has a benefit from that point, but it continues. It continues in effect to the present and into the future. And so as we think of ourselves as Christians here this morning, something of vital significance has happened and its effects continue to now, this very morning, and forever into the future for our benefits. The effect is that we have been made perfect. We've been given that holy status and position. And then, from that foundation, the author says, by another present verb, those who are being sanctified. Verse 14. Here we have a present activity that has been ongoing, in fact, before now, but he's focusing now on, so okay, what's happening now for the believer? We are being sanctified, but it's not yet complete. And that's going to go on into the future. As we said that in the rest of the context of Scripture, then we know that, of course, at the day of our death, if the Lord does not return, then that is completed in our soul when we go to be with the Lord. And then the body is perfected at the last great day, conformed perfectly to that great resurrection body of our Savior 
in which then we will live forever and ever in great blessedness with God above. Now, even if you've not followed all of that detail, what does all this mean when you put it together? All of this grammar, all of these verbs, all of these tenses, what does it mean? Let me try and summarize this for you. If you say, I, I, I didn't follow all of that, I've lost you. What it means is this. We have an event here that took place in the past, Christ's death upon the cross. It is finished and completed along with His resurrection, which has occurred, doesn't continue on in the sense of keep being done, doesn't continue to die and continue to be raised. And He has been enthroned at His great ascension as the great heavenly high priest. That has all occurred. And those, either single event with different aspects or thinking of them as um, three events joined together, however you want to think about those, it has implications and results that come forward to the believer, even to us here today. What are those implications? We have been made perfect in that aspect of holiness of who and what we are in Christ. That's as Paul speaks of it to the church of Corinth, those who have been sanctified, he says. He's thinking there not of the ongoing work, but of our position, of our status, who and what we are in Jesus Christ. And then here, having pointed to that, the author in Hebrews then comes to that present process of ongoing work of sanctification. We are therefore being made holy. One commentator perhaps puts it like this, and I could not put it any better, so let me just quote this to you. If you're still not following, let me give you the one sentence which I think is helpful here. He says, quote, we are being transformed into what we have already been made, end quote. You get it? There is something that we already have by the work of Christ, set apart, holy, in the Lord Jesus, and that is being worked out by continually to work in us, body and soul, so that we are being transformed into what we have already been made by way of status and position. Now, brothers and sisters, you might say, well, that's kind of complicated theology. And I understand. It takes a while to think about this, wrap your mind around it. You might say, well, so what? Why is it important for me to know all of that? It's important because this has important implications for our Christian lives. It's important. I know some of you say, well, what's, what's the practical payoff of all of this? Well, here it is. Our sanctification has a once-for-all as well as an ongoing sense. To use phrases we often use in connection with these kinds of ideas, it has an already and a not yet. And if you don't get that right, then at best, you're going to be very confused in the Christian life and sometimes perhaps very frustrated 
and uh, find difficulties that would not otherwise be if you were clear about these things. Let me try and put it as simply as I can. From God's perspective, Christian, you have been made perfect because you are in Christ. We were thinking about that in our Sunday school hour. This is the idea when Paul in Ephesians 1 says, we have all the blessings that are ours in Christ. It's our status. We are a beneficiary of His perfection. As I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, where Paul writes to the believers at Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, so he's writing to Christians, to those sanctified, he says, in Christ Jesus. That's a past tense. He doesn't say who are being, he says who are. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What's the great declaration of the Christian faith? For those who believe in Jesus Christ, united to Him by faith. What's the great declaration of our faith? It is this. Christian, because He died, then you have died in Him. That's what union means with regard to the death of Christ. With regard to the resurrection, it means because He rose from the dead, then you too are alive in Him. That's what it means, union with regard to resurrection. Likeness in the likeness of death, likeness in the likeness of His resurrection. Because He is made perfect then, Christian, you too are made perfect in Him. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians, doesn't he? Ephesians 2 verse 6. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Now, again, these great realities that are um, come to us from our union with Jesus Christ are not to be disconnected or to be thought of just abstractly from our present Christian lives. As we might say, in the very practical things of living as pilgrims in this world on our way to glory. What, we might, what might we ask is the great Christian rule of life for the believer. One commentator puts it like this. You've got to think about this more than once um, to kind of get it, but let me cite it to you and then we'll just think about it for a moment. He says it's this. We are to be what we are in Christ. We are to be what we are in Christ. You see how he tries to bring these two things together. Things that are to be distinguished, but things that are never to be separated. We are already perfect in Christ by way of our justification, by way of our union with Christ. But we are yet to be fully sanctified. 
That's the ongoing work of being progressively, increasingly, we pray, conformed to the image of God's Son. It's a good way to think of it, isn't it? We are to be what we have already been made in Christ. Since we've been made perfect in Him, we are now becoming more holy, progressively, sometimes painfully slowly. I'll leave you to look at your life as I look at mine this morning. And sometimes it's painfully slow, isn't it? Sometimes the point where we might not think, is there any progress at all? But God is committed to finish the work He has begun. And so there is progress if we are true believers. Since we've been made perfect in Christ, we are now becoming progressively, increasingly holy in our lives. Of course, there's a great warning here and a reality check. If that cannot be said of us um, to any degree, if our profession is mere words and there is no evidence at all, the biblical word and idea is fruit of repentance, then our claim, our profession is at least to be questioned. Not so much by others, though that is appropriate, but by ourselves this morning. If there can be no sign of this practical holiness, then what right do I have to claim a status of holiness? For God has made clear the two things are inextricably tied together. Where you find one, you find the other. And where there is the absence of the one, particularly in terms of the evidence of the fruit of the Christian life, then at the least there ought to be a realistic examination of the one professing the status. Now, verses 15 through 17 then, look back on the new covenant to highlight both what we might call the external and the internal, objective and subjective aspects of our salvation. Notice verse 17, God has forgiven our sins. That relates to justification. That's a legal declaration. It's external, it's objective. The Lord then has put His law in our hearts and written it upon our minds. Verse 16, this is sanctification. It's internal. It's subjective. See how it is both and, not either or. Certainly salvation is a definitive act of God, whereby, as our forefathers would say, He forgives our sins forever and accepts us in Christ. That's the great glory of the gospel. But it's also salvation, a lifelong process of deliverance from the power of sin. The power is broken, but the effects of that power in our lives. And it's a lifelong process then of increasing in that newness of life 
that Paul says, Ephesians 4.24, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a lot here, brothers and sisters, I appreciate that. But even as we seek to um, embrace but part of this, and increasingly more and more as we grow in grace and knowledge of the truth, then as one commentator puts it, he says, quote, there is nothing more thrilling to the believer than I will become perfect in the bearing of His, that is God's image, in conformity to Christ, end quote. Does that prospect thrill your soul this morning? Because that will tell you a lot about the health or otherwise of your Christian life. Does the reality of that already, the prospect of that in consummate fulfillment, thrill your soul this morning? The commentator goes on, he says, quote, because of what Christ has done for me, it is my reality, though not yet what is seen fully complete in me, end quote. Can we identify with that this morning? He concludes by saying, this is what is true and real for all believers in Christ. Therefore, the very thought of this should create in us, he says, a great appetite for practical holiness and with an increasing dread of and loathing for sin. You want to know what motivates true holiness? Is a great grasp of the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's not just trying to motivate ourselves to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and do better in the Christian life. It's rather appreciating more and more what Christ has done for me, to know that He has made me holy, set me apart. That is my reality, though not yet what is fully complete in me. It's that that must motivate our holy living. He finishes by saying, quote, if we have grasped only a portion of this truth, if we've laid hold of a fragment of our true identity in Christ, we will no longer live as we have, end quote. That's a challenge, isn't it? Why do we make so little progress in practical holy living? The author of Hebrews, many believers reflecting upon this biblical text would suggest to us because we have not made sufficient progress in grasping the glorious truth that's set out here of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and therefore has given us all that is necessary by way of the power of resurrection life to then live to the glory of God in conformity to the image of His Son. Well, then we move on in the third place to a great comparison, verses 11 through 14, a great comparison. All of these great truths that we've thought about in this concluding section here come to focus in one great comparison that the author here seeks to drive home. And that again is the comparison between Israel's priests and the one true perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, we see the priests of the Old Covenant, all of them together, viewed as an entirety, in all of their futility to be ultimately unable to offer a sacrifice that can take away sins. Verse 11. And then in great contrast to that, the author presents Jesus Christ and the effectiveness of His work as the true great high priest, verses 12 through 14. What does he say? Christ's sacrifice was not offered over and over and over again, but once for all, he says. And in this, we see the great sufficiency of His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The resulting situation then could not stand in greater contrast with that of the Old Covenant people, where you remember the priests had to continue to offer day after day, morning and evening, blood sacrifices. But you have those words that if you read the book of Hebrews carefully, you cannot come away from it without them ringing in your mind that can never take away sins. They were never meant to because they couldn't possibly do so. They were to point to one who would come that would do so. But they were not it. That's the point he's making. And now he says, look at this one, the great high priest. Seated in the heavens, His work is accomplished. His work is established. It fulfills all that it was promised it would do and it was intended to do. Well, of course, here the author is wrapping up all of his um, great theological um, propositions and uh, summaries here as he comes to this transition portion in his letter. And as he does so, we see what is the great theme here. It's, of course, the great theme of the book of Hebrews, the great theme of all of Scripture. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Exalted, ruling and reigning for His church, seated and enthroned in a position of rest. Uh, the imagery is similar to that of the picture of God resting after His great work of creation. Here the picture is of rest of the Lord Jesus in His great work as great high priest, having completed His work of recreation. A rest of sovereignty, of great omnipotent power, of omnipotent rule and control of all things in heaven and on earth, even as Matthew in his gospel uh, quotes the great words of the Lord Jesus Himself just prior to His ascension. All authority, He says, has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now again, in the midst of the glorying of these things for the believer, again, there is a great warning for anyone outside of Christ. The rule and reigning of the ascended King-Priest Jesus Christ has the most Horrible, one commentator says, implication for Christ's enemies. If you are still outside of Christ, if you are still His enemy this morning, this truth, this reality has the most terrible, the most awful, the most horrible implications. Notice what he says in verse 13. 
not only for the devil and his demons, but also for every sinner who rejects Christ and His gracious offer in the gospel. Verse 13, He's waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. That's the implication of this if you are outside of Christ. You may deny Him this morning, whoever you may be. You may mock Him. You may think and glory in your great freedom to do as you please. You may echo those words that were said before His crucifixion, I will not have this man to rule over me. You Christians want to do that? That's fine. But I will not. I will not submit. I'm the king of my life, my existence. I will determine what is good and right and proper and what I desire. But notice the great end tragically the end for such. If you would not submit to His righteous, lordly rule, He sits enthroned despite your denial, despite your mocking, despite your rejection. And the author reminds us here that history is racing towards that great last judgment to which you will be summoned and where you will be compelled to bow the knee to this great King. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? This will come about. That's why this is such a sober warning for all those who are outside of Christ to come and repent and believe whilst you may whilst you may be reconciled, as Psalm 2 says, with this King on the way until and before you get to that great day of judgment. Be warned this morning if you're outside of Christ. This great King will judge you and you will have all of eternity to rue and regret the day that you turned away and rejected Him. Your very life will be sustained. You will not disappear into oblivion or annihilation. Your life will be sustained, but only ever to endure this, the pains of hell, the judgment of God. Why would you do that? Tell me, why would you do that? Come to Christ this morning whilst you may. And you can experience these blessings too. Forgiveness of all your sins. What would you claim this morning would keep you back? Christ freely offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life even for all who repent and believe. And so finally we come to verse 18 and our last fourth point, a great conclusion. Verse 18 here concludes our text and indeed the whole doctrinal portion here of the book of Hebrews. 
with this great declaration where sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no work left for the Savior to do. He's completed all. No longer any threat to the salvation of those who are united to Him in faith. Where sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any offering for sin. Would you know peace and rest this morning? Even in a world of turmoil, where the world fears what's going to happen next, whether it be threats militarily, economically, societally, whatever it may be, that which causes you anxiety, and you wonder what is going to happen next. Where sins have been forgiven, there's no longer any offering for sin, for it's been made, and you may have the blessings of peace with God, even through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have that peace, even as Jesus is enthroned, even as that day approaches of His final declaration of triumph, those who are united to Him can rest through faith as we re-rate His return in glory. It's here the great conclusion to this section of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Lord willing, from here we will move on uh, to some of the more detailed applications of what the author has said. And yet, as we draw to a close this morning, we stand at the conclusion of this great section of the book. As we think of that in terms of how the book is put together, we might ask ourselves this question by way of final application this morning. How then shall we conclude our considerations, our reflections, our thoughts on the book of Hebrews so far? We shouldn't have to think for long if we're believers this morning to come up with the only one appropriate answer. And that is to pray the Lord would draw our hearts and minds upwards, our eyes upwards and forwards, to where Jesus Christ already sits enthroned, reigning with great power for our great salvation, the one who has accomplished everything needed that we might be saved. Christ is at the center of Hebrews, as He is at the center of all of Scripture. He's, he's the meaning of everything we've thought about thus far, and it will continue to be. Let me just read down some of those great themes as we close, that hopefully then would not just be statements of great truth as they are, but then would warm our hearts and draw our hearts upwards to where Jesus Christ is seated in glory. We thought about the tabernacle and the temple, didn't we? They're all about Christ and His work. The priests and the rituals of the Old Testament served only to point to Him. Blood that was shed year after year, day after day, could never take away sins in and of themselves, but they spoke of His blood shed once for all upon the cross. The veil that prevented the Old Testament saint from seeing 
into the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ, inviting our gaze into not just an earthly representation of the Holy of Holies, but into the very heavenly temple itself, where our Savior sits now, reigning and ruling forever. Do you see how everything in this book has pointed to Him? And that everything is for the believer found in Him and with Him. Everything that we need comes from Him and draws us to Him as His people. That's the great conclusion here as we come to this point. It almost feels like I'm trying to get us to the end of the book in a conclusion like this. We're not there, but, but it's appropriate we pause like this at this point. What's the great conclusion we draw here from the book of Hebrews? It must be this, says one commentator, quote, the profession of our faith and Christ must be the great affection of our hearts. To know Him and serve Him, to grow in His likeness, must become the great ambition of all our lives, end quote. Is that your great ambition this morning, Christian? To know Him, to serve Him, to grow in His likeness, your great ambition for all of your life. May God grant it to each one of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the book of Hebrews. We thank You for this concluding section of the doctrinal teaching of the author. We thank You again how He points us clearly to Christ and all that He has done for us. Grant that each one here might be united to Him by faith, and that none might be found on that last great day apart from Christ, separate, still His enemy, and subject to that great wrath and judgment that will come to all who yet are in their sins. Have mercy upon each one of us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.